Hello everyone, and welcome back to the next episode. I said the next episode. This is the next episode of the Substitute Podcast. Uh, it's just me again this week. I have got a guest planned for the next podcast. Uh, it's something pretty cool that I've been working on. I won't spoil it because, you know, I'll save it for the thing. But um, yeah, today, as the title suggests, I'm going to talk about sports cards. Um, so I'm predominantly going to focus on American sports. So the, the big four, which is basketball, baseball, hockey and american football which i would just call football for the purposes of ease in this i will probably do an entire episode on like football like european football soccer um just because it doesn't fit in that well um and its history is a little bit different because of the popularity of football in europe as opposed to the us so yeah this is going to be a spotify exclusive well spotify google the other places um you can listen to this podcast just because i don't think it needs visuals um and going forward i feel like a lot of the podcasts will be spotify exclusive slash google slash where else listen to it um just because i don't think you need the visual aids in a lot of these the only exception will be if obviously i choose to to have one that has visual aids or the best set ever or the best card ever because i feel like one that needs it and two i've already started it with visual you know with with graphics um so that will continue I will finish that series at some point, although I might aim to end it roughly around Celebration's release, so that's in in a month and a half's time. Um, So we've still got XY, Sun and Moon, and Sword and Shield. Yeah, so basically I'll I'll, I'll aim for that to get the final episode done around about Celebration's time. So, sports cards. Sports cards are very popular as you can imagine there are literally thousands and thousands of channels on youtube that talk about sports cars talk about trading investing buying like vlogs of people going to shows history videos you name it there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of millions of hours of content based around sports cards but sports cards in the uk are they are gaining you know gaining interest but at this point they aren't particularly well known and i thought it would be Maybe a good idea to fill in some of the blanks. So I'm going to give you a brief history of sports cards of the the big four, like I said, and then I'm going to talk more about the uh, the modern sets, uh, how you collect them, what's available right now, the kind of like process of of collecting. So like what's in sets, what you're looking for, the pro- the concept of uh, rookie cards and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so if, obviously if you if you know everything about sports cards, then this isn't really the podcast for you. Um, I'd still appreciate if you listen to it anyway. You might learn something. I, I've learned a few things already doing the research for this. But I just thought it would be nice to talk about something that isn't really talked about a lot in Europe. And we predominantly focus on football, like soccer football. Again, I will refer to American football as football throughout this, just because it's it's easier. It's one less word. And when you talk about these American dominated markets it is football it's the only football that they call football so yeah the first thing really is history so sports cards have been around for at this point 150 years like the the first the first sports cards ever produced were baseball and baseball has been predominantly the most popular sport throughout history recently that's kind of debatable but still in the past, baseball was the first and was the first big sport to have collectible trading cards. 1860s was the first sports card, the first sports cards produced, and they were baseball cards. And these cards were included as promotional material in things like cigarettes and sweets and chocolate and various other things like that. And so what they would do is they would promote these products and say, if you buy a pack of cigarettes, you get a baseball card of one of the big players of the day i don't really know any of them of the day because it was 1860 and i have no real interest in 1860s baseball but there will there will be channels on youtube that will dedicate their entire channel to talking about this kind of thing so this carried on for a while um, and by the 19 by 1900 most cards were made by both tobacco companies and confectionery companies and by most i mean pretty much exclusively and a couple of the big names around this time was American Caramel, who, as the name suggests, were a, a confectionery company, and American, the American Tobacco Company, which, again, as the name suggests, made tobacco and cigarettes and stuff like that. So baseball carried on doing its thing, 
But meanwhile, in, in the late 19th century, football cards, American football, became a thing. So football cards were, again, similarly included in cigarettes. And the first set was a, uh, a set based around one person, which was Henry W. Beecher. And there was a 50-card set of only him. So, you know, imagine how special he must have felt that he was not only the first sports card, but there was 50 cards based around just this one man. So these were included in cigarettes made by Goodwin and Company, and they have kind of two brands, like sub-brands, and they were Old Judge and Gypsy Queen. So quite often you will hear, in relation to older, this kind of era is called pre-war. Um, it's pre-Second World War, but, you know, obviously this is pre-First World War. Um, you will hear names like Gypsy Queen and American Caramel thrown around, and this is... This is why, because they had promotional cards in their, in their products. So these were used as similarly to baseball just throughout the early 1900s to promote products. Uh, at this point, it was usually college football. So nowadays, you have two, essentially two tiers of NFL, sorry, of American football. So you have the NFL, which is like the, the top tier, the professional sports league. And then you have collegiate sports, which is, you know, college. So in England, we'd call it university sports, but obviously in America, it's a lot more serious. Collegiate sports is is a big, a big, big thing. And they would promote these college sports through these cards. So we then get on to hockey, which is the third of the big four. Again, if you're from Europe or the UK, you might not think of hockey as one of like the big four sports. You would probably think that, that soccer, football would be there instead. But traditionally, hockey has been a very popular sport in America and Canada. And hockey was introduced for the first time in 1910. And this was to commemorate the first NHL season, which is the National Hockey League. And these were made by Imperial Tobacco Canada, who, similarly to other companies, use them to promote their products. These were included in boxes not necessarily just to as like an incentive, but also as like a you know an extra layer of extra layer of protection. And these were produced throughout the twenties and the thirties, and through to nineteen forty one, a company called OPG printed hockey cards. Uh, you'll hear from those. You'll hear that name again later on. But we've discussed you know three other sports. But what was happening in baseball throughout this time? So I said baseball was very popular, and it was. And so baseball had a number of different sets and a number of different companies printing them. And so they were used throughout the 1910s until World War I. Then, as you can imagine, World War I came, production was shifted to the war. And at that point, baseball cards were no longer the priority. So their production almost entirely stopped. And people focused on other things. Um, cards weren't really printed again much until after the Great Depression, uh, which is the, the late 20s. But in the early 1930s, production again took a massive uptick as people were you know, able to afford the luxuries that these cards were included in. So they were more freely able to afford cigarettes and you know, confectionaries. And these were included in a number of different products. So they were included in things like breakfast cereals and bread and again cigarettes and basically any like luxury item that you i mean i would say bread is a luxury item but there are luxury brands of bread obviously so you can you know if you're encouraged to buy a slightly more expensive item because it comes with these cards that you collect you know if you have kids kids want to collect these adults also want to collect these you know it's, it's basically a win-win for these companies um and a couple of these sets in the early 30s that are quite predominant even now is the 1932 Caramel set and the 1933 Gaudi set. So Gaudi was the first company, to my knowledge, to include gum in their product. And bubblegum cards, or just gum cards as they were known at that point, would be the blueprint for a lot of the distribution of cards, even after cards were sold just for their own you know, appeal. Um, so this 1933 Gaudi set is very uh, notorious. I wouldn't mean notorious. It's basically it's famous for including a Babe Ruth card. So the Gaudi Babe Ruth is a big card in the 
in the hobby. Uh, it's very expensive and it's you know quite rare, difficult to get in a good condition because of its age. Um, one more card that I will mention later on when it comes to sort of like the the market now uh, is a uh, Honus Wagner, which is a T206 card. It was for a long time, and I believe now is again the most expensive sports card ever sold. Um, one sold recently, I think, for $6.6 million. You'll notice that I've not mentioned basketball at all. Um, and that's because basketball was pretty sparse before World War II, and actually pretty sparse before the 50s. Um, so the first cards were printed for, for basketball were actually in 1910. And this was uh, in a set called College Athlete Felt B33. And these were basically like a redemption system. So you would get these cards and you would send them in as like you'd send a full set into a company and then they would give you something back in return. And uh, this happened again the next year with a set called T6, the T6 College Series and the T51 College Series. And these would not only be basketball, there'd be a variety of sports. And what you would do is you would collect the whole set, you'd post it to them, uh, because, you know, that's the only real way you could get things to people at the time. And they would give you some sort of reward. So one of these rewards was bas- was baseball equipment, because baseball was the most popular sport of the time. Basketball was not really seen again until the like early 30s. And again, it was not basketball exclusive. These was This was a set with plenty of other cards, uh, plenty of other sports. And it's actually not known how many basketball cards were in this set. So that pretty much takes us up to World War II. As you can imagine, during World War II which in America, you remember, started in 1941. They didn't enter the war until then. They didn't manufacture sports cards for very obvious reasons. It was, you know, it was a time of of severe austerity. All of the extra money and resources you had, you put towards the war effort. So during the, you know, the mid, up until the mid-40s and slightly after the war, there was no real market that was producing anything like this. It was considered a frivolous luxury and therefore completely unnecessary. So we will pick back up again in the 1950s when production, it boomed. So now that we've done the up to the 50s, I'm going to run through basically every sport quickly, give you a quick whistle-stop tour of what's happened in every sport. So we'll start with baseball. Um, So after the war, uh, Bowman were the first company to produce cards and they did this from 48 to 52 and continued to be the sole maker of cards up from that for those those five years. In 1952, Tops entered the game and this is the point where now there was competition, there was, you know, there was a competition between the two between the two companies of who could, you know, basically wipe the other one out or make more money. And so in 1952, the Tops set was released. This set is most known for the Mickey Mantle rookie card. Uh, it's not actually his rookie card because that was in the 1951 Bowman set, but it's known as his basically his unofficial rookie card. And it's the most desirable post-war baseball card. Was the most expensive for a very long time. So then we move forward a few years. In 1956, Tops buy Bowman. So they bought everything about them. And they were, again, continuing as the only company to make baseball cards, but in 1959, Fleer, who were a gum company, entered the game offering, you know, a similar thing, cards in packs with gum. The reason they included these cards is to sell more gum, which has been working up until this point. That makes perfect sense. In 1965, Topps licensed production to OPG, the company we talked about before, who were the Canadian company, uh, to make cards on their behalf. They actually, at one point, did have to change the card design, uh, and they included French-Canadian versions of cards. In the 1970s, several companies licensed rights to produce cards and and premiums, so this would basically mean that they don't compete directly in producing cards. They produce a different product. So companies like Kellogg's, the cereal company, produced like 3D cards, which were in no way comparable really to the com- to the cards that Tops were producing but they still licensed the rights to do this in 1975 Fleer successfully sued Tops and what this meant basically meant is it broke the monopoly that Tops had at the time and allowed them to produce cards that were in competition with them so they could produce cards that were similar 
um, as an alternative, basically. In 1981, Fleer and another company called Donruss introduced cards, and these cards came with gum, much like the Fleer cards did before. Turns out that Topps had exclusive rights to cards with gum, so Fleer and Donruss just removed the gum from their products, and this is where they started selling just the cards on their own. So we'll skip forward a few years to the late 1980s. Another company, Score and then Upper Deck, which is, again, another company, they entered the market. Um, Upper Deck offered higher production quality, which was, you know, thicker cardstock and other things that I'll talk about in a minute. And these were basically a premium alternative to the pretty flimsy cards that Tops were producing at the time. This, com- this company I mentioned, Upper Deck, in the early 1990s introduced things like Parallels, and uh, in the early 1990s, Upper Deck introduced these things, these parallels. They introduced, uh, like I said, stamped cards and things called refractors. So refractors are basically your base card with a layer of shiny film on it, really. That gives kind of a rainbow effect, like a prismatic effect in the light. In 1997, patch cards were introduced for the first time, again by Upper Deck. Uh, patch cards are a small kind of swatch or piece of material from a shirt or some shorts or whatever of the player. Um, and they also added one of ones. So one of ones, as the name suggests, there are only one of those that exist in the world um, for multiple cards in the set. In the late 1990s, rookie cards were introduced. And um, rookie cards had always been a kind of an unofficial thing, but rookie cards added the rookie card stamp. Hence why in 1951 and 1952 you have two mickey mantles that are both deemed as rookie cards they're both unofficial rookies they're more first appearance cards and um these rookie cards were now able to be stamped so you could be identified you know a card could be identified easily as the rookie card of that didn't stop there being multiple rookie cards that's important to say like each set would have a rookie card but within each Within each company that produced cards, they would only have like one rookie normally. As we get into like the late 1990s, companies folded and only Tops and Upper Deck were left. And in 2009, Tops became the first official MLB card producer in which they got full exclusive rights to names and logos. And then this was renewed three years later and then three years later again. And they have the official rights up until 2025. But they are quite importantly not keeping those rights and i will talk about that very much at the end once i've gone through all of the sports and talked about that kind of thing um there's a new company that's popped up and has basically bought the rights to everything so i will talk about that in a minute so we'll cover football next um for the rest of the sports the histories are quite a lot more simple and quite a lot shorter um there's just not as much going on really so like i said with football um there was some before world war ii but not that much um there were after world war there were two main producers there was bowman and leaf who leaf were a candy company so they were actually called the leaf candy company they reproduced their first sets which were about 100 cards of uh, current players in the in the national football league which is the nfl and leaf sets also were the first ones in color which was quite a big thing a uh, leaf only made one more set um, and that was in 1949. But Bowman continued producing for, for multiple years after. Topps Chewing Gum, which is I've mentioned before, Topps, would make their first set in 1950. And like I said, Bowman were bought by Topps. And Topps produced a new set um, after after buying them. Uh, Fleer entered the market in 1960. You, you'll see that the, the histories of these are all quite similar, which is why I'm just going to skip through these quite quickly. Um, Fleer entered the market in 1960 and they made cards of the AFL which was was another alternative basically so you had the American Football League and the National Football League they were both similar kind of you know leagues that had these teams in them uh, there were two they did merge at one point I believe so you know bear that in mind so yeah they switched to NFL and then a company called Philadelphia Gum secured the rights for football cards in 1964 Similar to what happened for baseball cards is you'd get like serial manufacturers and other things would release similar products. Um, there wasn't so much of a licensing problem with football. So companies like Kellogg's could just release a set. Um, they released their first set in 1970 and they would l- regularly release sets uh, for the next kind of 13 years until 1983. 
until companies like Score, which I mentioned earlier, and Upper Deck um, ob- obtain licenses to to print. Uh, Upper Deck print so many that it actually rivaled rivaled tops. The Upper Deck's rise was was quite meteoric, and they um, produced cards up until 2010. In 1992, a company called Skybox International, which the company was only founded a few years before, made its first set of football. And there's another company called Collector's Edge, which produced football cards in the 90s. So you'll quite often hear um, you quite often hear a phrase which is the junk wax era. So the junk wax era was around this kind of like mid 90s, like early to mid to late 90s. And what ha- was happening is that so many companies had the rights to print cards that they were just printing as many as they could print as quickly as they could to try and gain market share and what happened is everything became essentially worthless because there were so many different variations of each player all the cards were very similar because up until the late 90s there was no real distinguishing features to separate the cards which is why upper deck was such a big thing when it came out because they could produce these higher quality cards and they included patches and you know these one of one cards that were incredibly hard to find and then later on, the, the rookie card qualifier also separated these cards. But there are hundreds and hundreds of versions of each player in all these sets. So essentially, they all had very little value. Donruss um, came into football in 1995, like I mentioned with baseball. They did a similar thing. And then all of these set, all of these companies were kind of on and off producing cards up until 2009 when Panini... Uh, a company that were predominantly known for producing stickers who are an Italian company. They produced, they purchased Donruss and they made a new subsidiary called Panini America. In 2015, Panini signed a contract with the NFL and that gave them inclusive, exclusive uh, rights to the league and also the ability to produce cards. Back to hockey. Hockey cards were... Um, were slightly later in being in production they appeared during like the 50s early 50s and um they were produced by you know lots of companies one again tops chewing gum was a company that produced them there's a company called parkhurst products as well that was a toronto-based company parkhurst and tops didn't produce cards for the 55 56 season but they did return two seasons after in the 60s hockey cards and hockey coins were made by uh, issued by food companies such as uh, sheriff's dessert, sheriff desserts, salada tea, and York peanut butter. Again, similar kind of strategies. Put them in products, encourage people to buy them. Uh, other companies continue to make cards. There's plenty of card, plenty of companies. There's, uh, Pinnacle, Pacific, Proset, Upper Deck, which I mentioned, Panini, Score. I've mentioned those two as well, and In the Game. And there were lots of other manufacturers, such as the seventh seventh inning sketch classic loads of others these were all various early 1990s manufacturers and again contributed to the the massive influx that caused the junk wax era Uh, it's worth saying that they're called wax because they used to be in wax packs and you quite hear well quite often people hear people say these days like ripping wax packs these days are not made of wax they're made of foil and plastic but it's just a name that stuck so there was a, a national hockey league lockout that basically wiped out a season and this was in 2004-2005. After this happened, it emerged that Upper Deck were the only company that were licensed to to make cards. So Upper Deck, you know, paid for five years of exclusivity with licensing. And without the licensing, Tops just didn't bother making hockey cards anymore. So Pacific, the other company I mentioned, went out of business. And their last set was produced just prior to the NHL lockout. If you want to look into the NHL lockout, I won't explain it now, but you can look it up. It's widely available on Wikipedia and that kind of thing. Uh, the game, the company, the game, continued to actually produce cards without the licensing. Um, they signed like current and retired players to like, individual contracts um, so they could use their likenesses and, and autographs and stuff. And this kind of continued on with, you know, to Upper Deck having the the licenses to all the teams and then uh, the game having licenses to, to single players. Uh, Upper Deck renewed its contract in 2010, the 2010-11 season and Panini also got a license and um, so they were producing them simultaneously 
And then after the 2013-14 season, Upper Deck got exclusive rights and Panini lost their license. And up until now, Upper Deck are the only company producing hockey cards. So finally with basketball cards. Basketball cards, pretty simple, very similar kind of thing. Uh, Bowman Gum produced cards in 1948 and these were NBA cards, so National Basketball Association. Uh, they had a 72-piece set and they included, you know, some some notable rookie cards. Tops then began to manufacture cards in 1958, and then they went back in 1969-70. Fleer had its peak during this kind of midpoint uh, in, 19, in 1961, and then they came back in 1986. Um, they actually resurrected, oh, they essentially resurrected the basketball industry, basketball card industry, not the basketball industry, um, and included you know, rookie cards like Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley, like huge rookies that now are like the, the cornerstone of the collecting hobby in, in basketball. This set is, is seen that by many, um, it's a direct quote, it's seen as many as the uh, 1952 tops of basketball, so the, the Mickey Mantle set equivalent. In the 1990s and 2000s, lots of companies produced basketball cards, tops, Fleer, Upper Deck, um, but then in 2009, the NBA licensed the rights exclusively to Panini, and Panini's had the license since then. Again, Panini losing their license to the same company that bought the baseball rights. So we will talk about that. But that was, that was basically the history. Um, I will delve a little bit more deeply into the kind of like the different versions of cards now, just to explain what they are, how they come about, like what they are, that kind of thing. So that was the history of uh, of sports cards. So. How are sports cards now, in in the modern day, in the in the ultra modern era? Um, so there's a lot more card types than there used to be. I say than there used to be. There's a lot more when it's obviously than when it started, and there's a lot more than the ones that just got added in the '90s. So there's a large emphasis now on particular card types. So I just run you through basically all the types that you can expect. There are also lots of there's lots of things included under each of these banners. So base is is base. Most sets have base, pretty much every set has a base set. Um, you don't tend to get checklists included in products nowadays. You usually just have them online, but um, they will have a base checklist. Um, each base card will also have a number of parallels. So parallels are cards that are different from the base in some de- aspect of their design, but the general like card will be the same. So you might have a card where you have the base card and then you have a silver version which is like silver and shiny you might also have a colored parallel uh, colored parallels can be numbered so what this mean is what this means is that on the back of the card you have like a number for the card and then out of how many of that card have been produced for the entirety of the print of the whole set there are multiple different numbers that cards and sets can have um they usually usually you get the re- like regular ones, so you have a one of one, which means that that is the only card of that version in the whole world. So if you pull it, you're the only person who's got it. There's usually of five, ten, twenty-five, fifty, and then it goes to uh, things that end in nine. So ninety-nine, one forty-nine, one ninety-nine, two forty-nine, etc. In theory, there is you know it could be out of anything. You quite often in some older sets you have jersey numbers, so you might have, for example, mother when a Michael Jordan, you might have a Michael Jordan out of twenty three, because that was his jersey number of the Chicago Bulls, and stuff like that. Generally, the price, as you can imagine, of the card goes up the more scarce it is. So one of one being the most expensive, and then of fives, and then of tens, etc. Uh, in addition to these base and parallels, you also have inserts. So insert sets are cards that are not base, but they usually have like an insert name. So this might be um, in modern sets, you have a thing called Kaboom. So Kaboom is a modern set insert. They are of a different design. There is a more limited amount of players that have this kind of insert that belongs to this insert. Inserts can also have parallels because why would they not? introduce even more variety so with kaboom for example you have kaboom and then you have gold kaboom gold kabooms are the same design but instead of it being silver it's gold and it's out of 10 normally it's normally out of 10 don't if i'm slightly wrong don't worry don't quote me but there is at least one that's out of 10 
There can be multiple insert sets. There generally are these days. So you can get multiple insert sets from a box or even some cases from a single pack. Next is autos. Autos are pretty self-explanatory, just literally short for autograph. Two different types of autos to watch out for. There are sticker autos, which is where a an athlete basically gets like a sheet of empty stickers that usually kind of see through with some kind of authentication stuff on them to prove that they're legit. They sign all these, they send them back to the company, and then they stick them on the cards. There's also on-card autos, which are becoming more of a thing now. Um, during COVID, obviously, on-card autos were difficult because the way that on-card autos are, are achieved is you send the physical card to the person who signs them, or they come to you. So traditionally, what would happen is you'd have a company like Tops or Panini, they would invite athletes in, they would do a signing session, and then they would you know, sign all of the things that they were supposed to sign. They would put on um, any kind of clothing, which I'll get to in a second when we talk about patches, and then that that was it. Um, during COVID, there was a big, a big trend towards sticker autos because it was just difficult to, it was just difficult to get, you know, get people in and get stuff to them and back safely. So the next thing I said is patches. So patches are, they are usually, but not limited to, shirts or jerseys um generally you will have either two different types of, of patches you'll have game worn which is where as the name suggests they wore them in the game and player worn player worn just means that they wore it at some point quite often player worn means they will put a jersey on sign some cards then take it off and then they cut it up so you know game worn is what a lot of people want um don't worry, you know, it doesn't smell or anything, obviously. But game-worn just means it's game-worn, and on the back of the card it will tell you if it's game-worn. Literally, I think I think all the time. I think every single game-worn one tells you, partly because it's a, you know, it's a good thing to have as, as a collector, but also it makes it feel more special if you're opening packs and you find a game-worn game thing. Um, in addition to this, you also have relics. So relics are anything that's kind of not patches so relics could be anything from a piece of a foot like a piece of american football or a basketball um quite commonly in baseball you have bits of a bat you might have um there's some really weird ones but like you have like a stud from a player's boot uh you have some part of someone's cap it could literally be anything associated with the athlete in question um and anything that's not a patch is called is called a relic or sometimes people just refer to them still as patches even though they're not patches come in two main types so you have one type of patch which is called a it's called a napkin so you might hear them call a napkin call it a napkin a napkin just means it's one color so say your team plays in the team that the player plays for plays in white you might have a patch that's just a white piece of fabric you generally are looking for multiple colors and there are patches that are generally reserved for more exclusive cards so in basketball for example you have a what's called a logo man so the logo man is the nba logo which is um it's a blue red white and blue kind of outline silhouette kind of thing of a player called jerry rice and uh i think it's jerry rice i'm pretty sure um but you only get one per shirt obviously so that's generally reserved for like cards that are out of uh one of ones or out of three or whatever because there is a limited number of those um, they another other things they also use they might use the like the letters from a player's shirt the team logo maybe like the sponsor logo whether it's like a Nike swoosh or an Adidas three stripes kind of thing. Um, they also do things with laun like laundry tags. So obviously in each shirt you have like a laundry tag and that that can be there's only one per shirt. They might use three shirts to make all of the cards. There's only three of those available. What you can do next is just combine these things. So you can have uh, patch autos, which is just a patch and an autograph. Again, patch autos can fall under the top, can have the different varieties. So you can have napkins and multiple colors. You can have on cards and stickers. So it's possible to have a on card game worn multiple color auto. These are the most desired things, especially if it's like, a particularly cool one or it's like a low numbered card the one step up from this is a rookie patch auto 
So as part of the base set, you have, like I mentioned before in the history, you have rookie cards that are now designated as rookie cards. So rookie patch autos are a combination of a card that belongs to a rookie, has been signed in some way, and is a patch. Again, all of the other different variations, so you can have napkins or multiples on cards and stickers. Um, but yeah, there's just this is why collecting full sets in sports is just completely unviable because there are so many varieties now of cards that it's almost impossible to get everything. One small kind of deviation from rookie patch autos is there's a thing called a true RPA. So RPAs are rookie patch autos. True RPAs are a thing that was introduced for, there's a set called National Treasures. National Treasures has multiple rookie patch autos of the same athlete in it. The true RPA was basically brought in to be the, basically it's the base card that is out of 99 that is signed and has a patch. True RPA is, is one of those things where like a lot of people don't really like it because it's all it's done is kind of drum up interest and they think it's to price hike these like lesser relics um, and on autos and, and patches and whatever. I, I have no real opinions, but uh, when you search True RPA online, you get some varying opinions of both what True RPAs actually are and if they are, you know, it's actually a relevant criteria that you can apply to something. So now we've talked about the, the parallels and the card types. I guess the next stop is how you get these things. How do you obtain these items? And as with, you know, TCGs and, and anything like that, you basically just have to buy packs. Packs come in multiple formats. Um, and it's not like, say, with Pokemon, for example, you have multiple products, but each product contains the same packs. So if you buy an Elite Trainer box or a Booster box, you still get the same packs of Chilling Rain or Evolving Skies. Obviously, the contents will differ, but the packs' contents will always be the same. It'll always be, you know, four uncommons, but yeah, four uncommons, four commons, a reverse, a rare of some kind, and then an energy. Whereas in sports, this isn't always the case. Different formats offer you different things, and the reason that they, and the well, one of the selling points really of these formats is that they all offer you something slightly different that is exclusive to that product. So these might be a an exclusive parallel that you're guaranteed. It might be the ability to get a guaranteed RPA card. It might be the fact that one product comes with autos and one product doesn't come with autos. And it tends to be that the more expensive products come with the more desirable things. Um, a lot of them are guaranteed. So, like, if you buy... There's a, a concept that's has, that Panini has, and it's called First Off The Line. First Off The Line is basically, like, the first edition of products. You get extra things, so... National Treasures this year, if you got first off the line, it came with a guaranteed extra rookie patch auto that you weren't guaranteed. It, it's all very, like, confusing, and this is why, like, a lot of people tend to get, get a little bit confused by, like, what's actually available in each product. And, and, and even after we've discussed this, it gets more complicated because there are two main formats in sports, and that's retail and hobby. So retail is, as the name suggests, like designed to be sold, but it's designed to be sold in stores as single packs. So a retail box, you will open the box, break it up, sell it as packs. Hobby is the opposite, where hobby is you, you they sell it by the box. You can't buy loose packs of hobby um, unless someone breaks it up and sells it separately, which you're not really supposed to do, but at the same time, like, you know, no one's going to send you to prison for it. These generally, the hobby generally has a higher price because it offers things that retail doesn't. Traditionally, it used to be that retail would be lesser product, um, and that hobby would offer you like would offer you something that you can't get. But now they've there's so many retail formats that retail formats now have things that other retail formats don't have, and they have other parallels that hobby doesn't have, and it's very confusing. And so I mean, I say it's very confusing. It's not very confusing, but it's not necessarily clear from um someone entering the the space as as I was when I entered like really why you would have to buy all of these products because 
you know, if you, if you have these guaranteed parallels in one product, you're like, why would I even want, like, do I want these? Do they have a do they have good value? And there's just lots of questions, but there's so many options with, with retail and hobby that it's just a little, a little confusing. And the retail tends to be a lot cheaper. They tend to be, as the name suggests, like for sale in shops. Doesn't mean they're cheap. Uh, a thing that I'll explain in a minute is that like, Recommended retail price or MSRP in America is just not really a thing anymore for sports cards. Um, it's kind of a problem if you want to buy them. So retail has like a couple of things um, that quite often they have. They have things called hangers. Hangers are when you have when you go into like a store or like a shop and you have like the check lane blisters in like Pokemon and stuff like that. They have like hangers which are that version for sports they tend to be pretty cheap they tend to be like kind of around the 20 dollar range in theory uh, you also have things called blasters blasters are basically just like boxes um it's hard to it's hard to really say like an equivalent for a blaster but it's just like you get a number of packs in a box it's not you know it's not going to break the bank and then you have other you have other things too there's there's loads of different variations so you have like hangers blasters you have things called like cello packs you have like mega packs you have loads of different stuff. It's all just variations on a theme. You have, you know, cards from the, the main set with maybe some parallels added and that kind of thing. Where it gets more, you know, more, like less less confusing, but more kind of breaking the bank is when you get to the super high-end products. So these super high-end products were introduced as like an alternative for people who really, really want the chance to pull something huge. Massive risk versus massive reward, basically. So there are three main products um, that kind of exist now. One of them is National Treasures, which I mentioned earlier about the true RPA thing. There's another one called Immaculate, and then there's one called Eminence. Eminence is the most expensive traditionally of, it, traditionally of these. They're all very expensive. Um, National Treasures has first off the line. I think Immaculate also has first off the line. I'm saying this, so these are... These are company specific. So National Treasures and Immaculate are both Panini. So Panini makes these. So if the Panini if Panini has the sport, then you get this option. Hockey, for example, does not have National Treasures or Immaculate because you don't get the you don't have the option with Upper Deck. Upper Deck do not make these products. Same with baseball. You don't get um, baseball National Treasures because top uh, Panini do not have licensing for it. So there's a few key products, and um, hockey doesn't. Hockey has key products, but because they are all made like they're all uh, upper deck, and upper deck don't make any others, it's quite clear with upper deck what the best what the best products are. Right, um, the more expensive ones have the the higher upside, but also the larger downside. And uh, upper deck and hockey just kind of does its own thing. Uh, the the key products for Panini is Prism, so Panini Prism is released at the is pretty much the beginning of each sports season. Um Panini Prism is predominantly for basketball and also uh football. It also has soccer as well. Um and they have generally the most expensive rookie cards in them and the most expensive rookie parallels. The Tops equivalent is Tops Chrome, so they're actually very similar. Uh in their kind of makeup, really. Tops Chrome, similar thing. Most expensive rookies generally come out of Tops Chrome. Um, when I say most expensive, the National Treasure ones and Immaculate ones and Eminence ones are more expensive. But when I say more expensive, I mean kind of like it's a lower end product. Well, not anymore, but it used to be. And the the rookies are the, the most desired, really. When you look at people, when you look at cards graded, a lot of them are Panini Prism rookies and Topps Chrome rookies. Baseball is made by Topps. Um, like I said in the history section, they bought Bowman. Bowman is still a set that they release. And so the Bowman Chrome baseball rookies are very expensive for good you know, good prospects. Uh, I'll talk about prospecting in a minute when it comes to talk about values. Um, Bowman Chrome is like the main set. Bowman Chrome has the official rookie cards in it. But yeah, that's that's the key product really. Um, I know I said I'd talk about prospecting in a minute, but I'm going to talk about it now. Prospecting is, the, as the name suggests, the kind of process of 
thinking about who's going to be the best young players going forward and trying to get ahead of the curve. Because of the drafting system in America, in all in these sports, it's quite obvious early on who is the best prospects are going to be. So in in football, um, football is a little bit different because football does have a draft, but the draft generally, like, because you have a larger number of players on the field, it tends to be quarterbacks that are heavily prospected on because. In football, quarterbacks are the most expensive position. They have the most glamorous role. They win. They you know they do the most actions, obvious actions that win games. They're the most expensive. Whereas with basketball, for example, doesn't really matter where on the court you play, you can still have the same kind of like effect. And for that reason, you know, as it's only a five-person game and positions are quite fluid in basketball, you don't have necessarily have to play a certain position. Like, if you you know, in the, if in the draft there is a point guard that's drafted below a centre, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a better prospect. Yeah, basically, the, the, the process is you identify a young prospect, rookie, and gamble on them. And sometimes, like I said, because of the draft system, this is very obvious, uh, baseball as well has like, you know, they, they call NBA is the big leagues. You have smaller leagues um, just below. So again, when as you rise up through the leagues, it becomes more and more obvious who the top prospects are. So these tend to be quite saturated markets. So an example being Zion Williamson last year, there are probably like 10,000 of his rookie graded already. There's probably another 30,000 in the queue at PSA. Uh, just heavily prospected. So it's a lucrative business if you get it right, especially if you identify someone early that other people don't identify, but it's a very saturated market as with kind of any prospecting. So there's one more thing that I need to mention before I talk about the takeover that's happened. Um, there's a thing called a redemption. And what happens is sometimes you will open a product and they want a card to be in that product, but it isn't ready for some reason. Uh, usually because the they usually autos that players haven't been able to sign yet. Um, in that case, you get a redemption, and it basically is a card that tells you what card it's going to be, and it has a little scratch-off section. You scratch it off, you go onto the website, uh, Panini or Tops, and then you redeem it that way. Um, generally, I've not seen that many Tops redemptions. Panini do a lot of redemptions, um, and then they send you the card when it's ready, basically. That's just the just the, the way it works. Um, the you could be waiting, you know, a couple of months for redemption. You could be waiting like a year. Um, and at the National, which is a big card convention, every year they do this kind of thing where you can like, if you had a redemption for a certain amount of time, you can basically go to the Panini booth and say like, I've had it for a long time. I don't want it anymore. Or I've had it for a long time and I'm sick of waiting. And they will give you like a make good. Um, so they'll cancel that and then give you something near enough the value. Um, these are quite often boxes. They're called like black boxes and they've got like one of ones and stuff in them. It's pretty cool. Um, majority of the time, you just get a redemption, you wait for it, and it comes through the mail. And that's it. Right, so this is Takeover. There's a company uh, called Fnatic. And Fnatic is a like a consortium, I think, some kind. It's a company, basically, and it's headed by the guy who owns StockX, whose name I can't remember. What they have done is they have bought the rights to not only the leagues for the MLB, the NBA and the NFL. They've also bought the rights to the players associations. And so you're probably thinking, why do you need to buy both? And the thing is to, that if you want to produce cards that are officially of the teams, you need to buy the league rights. But if you want players' autos and uh, memorabilia and stuff, you need to buy the licenses for the players association. Otherwise, you don't have the rights to those players' autographs and stuff like that. So what they've done is they've basically swooped in and they've bought all the rights for everything that they can get their hands on. And uh, these effects come into play kind of a staggered format. So I think the soonest is 2023 and the latest is 2026. And um, what this means is that for the first time ever, uh, baseball, football and basketball 
will all be made by the same company. And whether this monopoly is a good thing or not is is up for debate or whatever. It's, it's, it's isn't quite a new occurrence. It's happened quite recently within the last few couple of months. But this is leave this has left a lot of people in the in a weird situation where they're not quite sure where the hobby's gonna go, like how um Tops and Panini are gonna handle the next few years, whether they're gonna print loads and loads and loads and loads to try and like get as much money out as they can, or whether they're gonna be, you know, cherry picking the sets so they can maximize like hype and and that kind of thing. And um yeah, no one no one really knows. But it's important to mention because it is the future of the, the sports hobby. Um, it's not only uncertain, but also this company has invested a large, a very large amount of money into this, and it shows that they are incredibly confident in the future of, of sports cards as a whole, so much so that they're willing to back basically the whole market. So I guess, you know, we'll just have to see how it goes. So to end, um, so I've explained the history and I've explained the, the kind of general gist of collecting now. Um, I just want to touch upon a couple of problems that sports collecting has um one big problem that we ha i have especially if i wanted to collect these sports cards is that they're not widely available in the uk and europe as a whole predominantly all of them are printed in america and by virtue of that they are difficult to get over here and they cost a lot more because you have to pay import and um, there are uk places that resell cards obviously at slightly higher price than they would be in america Although, um, similar to the way that Pokemon experienced a, a shortage during the peak times, so tail end of last year, start of, start of this year, um, sports was experiencing a similar thing. So you probably had stories about places like Target and Walmart limiting how many they sell or if they sell them at all because it was becoming you know dangerous for their staff to sell them because people were trying to steal them or people were scalping them massively. And um, one of the one of the things that's come out of this is Pokemon pretty much fixed the supply problem. Uh, sports is having a more difficult time doing so, and because of this, you have in America MSRP, which is manufacturer's suggested retail price on products, but these products are so scarce that they end up having a resale value instead. So unless you buy directly from a distributor and the distributor gives you the things at MSRP, you're always paying a resale price. And this could be anything up to two or even up to ten times its its value. It's, it's MSRP value. Again, MSRP is a suggested retail price. So there is nothing wrong with charging people more than the suggested retail price. Uh, I mean, morally, you might say there is something wrong with that. But, you know, legally, there is nothing wrong with charging more than its MSRP. The price is set by demand and the demand at current and previously in the last like kind of like eight nine months has been way more than supply and therefore prices go up a lot of companies have found it difficult to source products a lot of shops especially like local shops have had to stop sourcing products completely again this is in america and the uk it's was difficult to get it hit anyway so like it's less of a, a problem for a lot of people i'm sure people have been affected by it and it's become more difficult Again, it's difficult in the UK to get it anyway, so I can't imagine how much more difficult it would have been than it was before. Um, so sourcing product, again, like it's, it's, it's difficult, regardless of where you are. Distributors also are liable to raise the price, so you may order a certain amount on release day, get it for a certain price. Two weeks later, you go to order more, and the distributors raise their prices, because, you know, why would they not? You have an option of of you who wants to play MSRP or someone who's like, I will pay you double that, and they're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna go with you. But what this has done really is it's kind of trended the price of cards up more than they already did. So that the way the way this happened really is that interest spiked during COVID. People saw that they could make money. They wanted to open new products to grade it to then sell it. So the price of products gone up. And the price of singles gone up. And then recently we had a bit of a dip um, as people have either lost interest because they can't get any product or they've got other things to do or they've just kind of made their money, sold up and moved on, that kind of thing. And um, that dip 
up until recently, you know, was was pretty good. And there was quite a large dip in a lot of high end cards. Like Michael Jordan's rookie card was a was a big one. Um, it peaked at around seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and then drops as low as like two hundred thousand dollars. And then suddenly one sold for like eight hundred thousand dollars. Although, from what I gather, that was like a very perfect example. Uh, it was a PSA ten, but I think they they bought it because they were convinced it was going to get a black label or something. I don't think a black label Michael Jordan actually exists, so that would be a first, obviously. Um, who knows? It might even even a pristine ten sells would sell for more than a PSA ten, so that might just be a, a gamble that they're willing to take. It's a it's a big gamble on a big, big gamble on their part, but you never know if you've got the money to to risk it, then you know go for it, I guess. Um, so that yeah, that brings us on to like top sports cards ever. So there are lots of sports card sales all the time. Um, and recently, like I said, the um, recently I've I said that about Honus Wagner that sold for six point six million dollars. Um, that is the the most expensive card ever. Just to give you a general gist of what else is is there, so. I mentioned earlier the Mickey Mantle. So Mickey Mantle is sold in a PSA 9 for $5.2 million. I don't think a 10 exists. Um, if it does exist, it would be well over $10 million. But I'm, I'm not sure if one exists. Again, you can check the PSA pop reports. That's why they're there. And next was a LeBron James that sold for the same amount. But that was a card from 2003. That was a an upper deck exquisite rookie patch autograph, LeBron James, in a BGS 9. Uh, it's the highest sale ever for a basketball card. Um, and, and it still is. Uh, next is Luka Doncic. That was a one-of-one one Logo Man autograph. So like I said, it's it's a one-of-one. One. The Logo Man is the is the, the NBA logo. Uh, and it's, it's autographed and it's one-of-one. One. This was ungraded. And from 2018, and it sold for $4.6 million dollars. Um, then the next one down is a Mike Trout. Mike Trout is a, a one of the best baseball players at the moment. This was a one of one BGS Mint Nine. It's a Bowman Chrome draft pick superfractor autograph. So superfractor is another word that you'll you'll see kind of banded around. Superfractors are always one of ones. So if you ever see the word superfractor, it's a one of one. Um, that was from two thousand and nine, and that sold for 3.9 ish million dollars and then the next one down is a Honus Wagner which was in a PSA 5 and it sold for 3 million dollars in in 2016 the latest sale i think was a was a PSA 9 but i could be wrong i think it was a 9 I'll double check this for you. It, I was wrong it wasn't a 9 of course it's not a 9 a 9 would be worth like 40 million dollars so the, the Honus Magnet that sold was a SGC 3. So we're talking, you know, not a good grade, but still because of its rarity and its, you, you know, it's, it's, and it's like notoriety and desirability, it sold for $6.6 .6 million. So that's kind of like a brief summary of sports cards. I'm sure I've missed bits. Um, if there's any questions that you've got, send me a DM on Instagram. I probably help you out but if not then there are a couple of channels that i'd recommend um sports card investor is a good channel uh it's run by a guy who is a basically like a tech investor and then this is also the thing that he does i would say on the side but you know it's a, it's a very active channel he's got a team that he works for that's a lot of like investment kind of side i didn't talk about that because i'm not i'm not a sports card investor like like they are um and they do a lot of stuff based on like cards week to week up and down that kind of thing um, i'd also recommend baseball card investor dealer uh that's his channel name there's a guy called chris Sewell, and he's like one of the largest sellers of baseball cards and sports cards generally in the world um his ebay has something stupid like two hundred eighty-five thousand feedback or something like that but he does a lot of videos which one of the videos is actually was pretty much this it inspired me to to do this podcast and he also does lots of talks he recently did one he did a video which is like an introduction to, to soccer cards for, for the american market and he does a thing called high rollers and regular rollers which are like the highest and sell 
the high rollers is the highest sales off eBay in the last week. And regular rollers is just like interesting stuff that, that he's found that people submit to his channel. So yeah, I think that's all from me for now. Um, again, like I said, next week we'll have something back to Pokemon again. I just wanted to do something a little bit different uh, because I was thinking about doing this for a little while and I I like, you know, I'm interested in sports cards. Um, not able to collect many of them myself because they are quite expensive. Um, especially graded ones, but like I just wanted to do something a little bit different. Uh, again, yeah, return to normal scheduling next week with some Pokemon things. Um, I'm not sure what there's going to be after that. Pretty much just what I feel like at this point. I'll get some more guests on. We'll talk about collecting and stuff. Um, and yeah, that's that's really, really it for me this week. So thank you for listening. I will leave some uh, links in the Spotify description, Google Podcast description, you know. I will, at some point I need to publish where it's available, but most people will either go to Google Podcasts or Spotify to get their podcasts. Um, so that's that's where I'm going to be. So thank you for listening, and I will see you all next week. Goodbye.